you'll remain standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, the reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stumbling, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who have had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. It's the reading of God's word, and Elder Hoy will be bringing our message today. You may be seated. It's a great privilege and honor to be uh, given the responsibility of uh, bringing the word to you all this morning. It is a task I always approach with a certain amount of fear and trepidation. Uh, To add to that, I am under the weather, just to let you know, so your prayers are appreciated in that. Uh, I did try to get especially dressed up to kind of mask uh, the appearances of not feeling very well, Um, so hopefully that came through. But there is one advantage of not feeling well in... uh, Bring, having a task like this, if, if there was any part of me that was mistaken in thinking that there was anything in and of myself that could work mightily in the hearts and minds of you all this morning, uh, that is especially uh, hampered as I feel this weakness. And I'm reminded that God's uh, power is made perfect in weakness. All that said, your pray- uh, prayers, even as I'm bringing the word to you today, are much appreciated. Uh, but let us open up with prayer. Gracious Father, it is a great honor and privilege to be gathered with your people. Uh, Forgive us for how easily we have uh, neglected your word. Father, I pray that we would be a people who treasure it. And even as this morning, as I have the honor and privilege of of, uh, bringing your word, of preaching it, may we see it as a great gift from you and as our treasure. Uh, Help us to see clearly what you would have to tell us about your church as we study these words this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're certainly uh, living in peculiar times. I'm sure uh, many of you have had lots of conversations with people about what's going on in the world. Uh, my, my view tends to be that we're experiencing the ebbs and flows of histories, that certainly there are... Uh, concerning things happening in the world, concerning changes, concerning especially in our culture, changes for the worse. Uh, but I also tend to think that there have certainly been other 
very difficult times to live in history. I think about what it would have been like to be a faithful Christian living in Nazi Germany, or maybe someone who is try- a Christian who is trying to be uh, faithful uh, during the era of the French Revolution. There are certainly other, and we could go on and on about the other times in history in which would it have been potentially difficult to be a Christian, even seeing things develop that were concerning and seems like maybe even more difficult things are to come. Uh, among some of my dispensational friends, uh, the, I know some people that are convinced that the return of Christ is any day. There are also people like uh, Rod Dreer who have uh, elaborated their concerns, uh, talk about the potential for soft totalitarianism and a poli- pink police state. And yet amid all these conversations that I've been having with people, there's a phrase that I found myself using over and over again, which is hope in the church. I believe I actually even used that phrase uh, last time I had the opportunity and privilege to preach here. And I know at least my wife and a couple other people asked me later, what did I mean by hope in the church? That might even strike you as a strange phrase for a couple reasons. We know that We're supposed to hope in God, but hope in the church? Isn't the church full of people who are bound to let you down and to fail you? Uh, The church, we all know, has has failed many a people and many a times. So what would I mean when I say hope in the church? Well, regardless of whether or not that phrase itself is one that we need to keep using or you think that there's a better way, there is an idea that I do think is abundantly scriptural, which is the church is the only institution on earth that God has promised to uphold. Jesus said to the apostles, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Since the church is the one institution that will last... That is where we should be pouring our energy, our time, and our hope. And I believe this is something that we see in the passage we're looking at this morning. You see, uh, the text we're looking at from the uh, book of 1 Peter, uh, we have the Apostle Peter writing to a suffering church. Yes, the Peter who was so well-known for sticking his foot in his mouth, the Apostle Peter who denied Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion, the Apostle Peter who, even after he was restored and was used so powerfully in the establishing of the church, fell into a legalistic heresy. That Peter is now writing to a church who is scattered about modern-day Turkey, trying to encourage them and to help them to suffer well. And among the encouragements that he gives to this church, to these Christians, he gives us these words from this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, in which he is trying to help them to root their identity, to root them in their identity and their calling as the church. So as we turn to this passage this morning, we will see that Peter is showing us that the church is a spiritual people with a spiritual calling. Or in other words, that in this passage, Peter explains some of the distinct traits that make the church the church, and he tells us what the primary focus of the church should be. So children, if you haven't really followed what I've said this morning, let me just try to make it really simple so you have some hooks to grab onto as you listen this morning. I'm going to be talking about what the Apostle Peter 
uh, teaches us about the church. So as you listen this morning, try to at least uh, hear what is the church and what is the church supposed to be doing in the world. So as we turn to our passage this morning, we're going to specifically look at five distinct features of the church from this passage. Five distinct features or characteristics of the church. So first, we see that the church is a people who are united through faith to Christ. So if you could open your uh, Bibles to me, we are here again in 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we turn to this passage, we see that it opens up with the phrase, coming to him as to living stones. So we see Peter addressing the church, addressing these people, and he opens with coming to him. That is the church coming to Jesus. And one thing I want to note right at the beginning is as I prepared this sermon, one of the challenges was the overwhelming amount of spiritual language in this passage. We see references to uh, spiritual sacrifices and all this sort of spiritual imagery of stones and of priesthood. And one of the challenges of spiritual language is figuring out what is the reality behind the kind of language that is being used, uh, this kind of spiritual language. So so here in our opening words, we read, coming to him, this is not a, a physical coming to Jesus, this is a spiritual coming to him. So the question is, what is the nature of our coming to Christ? For those who are in the church... How is it that we are to approach Christ? How do we come to him? Well, if we know our Bibles at all, and I'm sure each one of us here know that that there's only one way to come to Christ. There's at least only one right way to come to Christ, and that is through faith. But we're not left just to our general Bible knowledge to uh, infer this fact. We see in verse 6, Peter says, And he who believes on him will by... He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And in verse 7, we also read, Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. So we see that our approach to Christ must be one through faith, through belief. So the church is a people who are united to faith through Christ. Let's look at each one of those uh, parts and see how they relate to what Peter has before us. The church is a people united through faith to Christ. So first, the church is people. I think we know this. I think as a church, we know that the church is the people. Uh, And I don't mean to pick on the fact that we call our building sometimes the church. That's okay. I think we get it when we call the building the church. Hey, we're we're going to paint the church. Um, But let us never mistake the building for what the, the scriptures primarily speak of when they talk about the church. Buildings are great. Buildings are a blessing. Buildings give an opportunity for stability to a church community. Buildings provide a place to be rooted in a specific community. But a building is not actually primarily what the scriptures speak of when they speak of the church. And the church isn't even our gatherings. Yes, the church is called to gather. We're commanded to do so. And it is one of our greatest callings and privileges as the people of God. And we 
do refer to it. We're going to go to church. How is the church service? And that's fine. I'm not saying we can't use that language. But in our minds, we always have to have first and foremost clearly in our minds that the church is the people of God. And like I said a minute ago, we are the people who believe, who believe in Christ. And this passage before us doesn't just tell us that uh, that we do believe, but it actually gives us some very helpful insight into the nature of that belief. First, it shows us that true belief, the saving belief, the kind of belief that unites one to Christ, is a belief that identifies personally with Christ. We see in verses 4 and 5 that Christ is the cornerstone and we are the building stone. So we have this picture of a structure in which Christ is the chief stone in that building, the stone upon which everything else is established. And we who believe are the stones that fill in the rest of that building. So our, our belief identifies us personally with Christ in what he is doing in the world. We also see in verse 6 that uh, true faith, true saving faith, is a belief that clings to him for hope. In verse 6 we read, And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So we see that our faith isn't just a, a flippant kind of thing. It's not just an eternal sort of insurance. But there is a certain desperation to our faith in which we cling to him for our hope as our only source of rescue from shame. And we also see that true belief views Christ as precious. In verse 7 we read, Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. True belief doesn't just dismiss Christ as, as, a, as a, uh, something that we just happen to hold on to for the sake of tradition or, or merely for how we were raised, but a true belief sees Christ as, as, as greater than any treasure that this world has to offer. And so none of us here believe perfectly. Not even the greatest of saints have a perfect faith. But our faith, we should always be striving to grow in it, to have it more conform to the scriptural image of faith. And we should cry out like the man who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And now, as I'm talking about the church, I said the church is the people, people who believe in Christ. And I wanted to throw in a section, and, and their children, but lest I go too long this morning, I'm going to say, talk to Elder Anderson afterward if you want a little bit, if you're, if you're not sure about why we include children in our view of the church. Uh, and we, we also see, so it's a people who believe in Christ and the people who are united to Christ through faith. So if we look at verses 6 through 8 of our passage, we see a series of quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, when I first came to this passage, I wasn't sure what to, exactly to make of these, how to fit them into the flow of what Peter was saying, until I really picked up on this idea of being united to Christ. Because um, verses 6 through 8 develop an idea from the Old Testament that was mentioned in verse 4. In verse 4, it says, Christ is the chief cornerstone, which I mentioned a minute ago. Now, uh, I had asked one of my daughters in preparation for this sermon 
uh, or I asked all my daughters if they knew what a cornerstone was, and I, uh, I was glad to hear it because I'm not an expert on, um, on ancient architecture. And in fact, I didn't really spend any time briefing, uh, studying what a cornerstone is. But I was glad to hear that even my daughter got, gets the basic idea, and I think that's all we really need. It's, the cornerstone is the first stone that's laid down in the uh, building of a structure, and it's upon that one stone that the rest are then aligned. So we see that if Christ is the chief cornerstone, that that is the, that is the, the stone or that is the, the person by which everything else is established. And so then from that, we see that we are the stones united to that cornerstone. So then verses six through eight show from the Old Testament how Christ was rejected. Now, you might be wondering yourself that the whole purpose of this passage is to encourage these suffering Christians to help these Christians to suffer well. And you might think to yourself, how is this a source of comfort to point them to the fact that Christ suffered, that Christ was rejected? But we see a very important truth illuminated in these, in these passages. Because we see that as Christ was rejected by men, he was chosen by God. So just for those of us who have personally identified with Christ, we will be rejected by men. But as we are rejected by men, in our being tied to Christ... So we are chosen by God. And as we consider the glory of Christ and his resurrection and the treasures that are tied with that, we find encouragement, strength, and strength to endure hardships. So people of God, as the church, we are nothing less than a people who identified with Christ. Yes, we put our trust in him, and yes, we seek to obey him, but we must also identify with him. That means with his weakness and his suffering. Suffering should not come as a surprise to Christians. Being lowly and unglamorous shouldn't come as a surprise to us as Christians. Consider the Christ we worship and who we have placed our trust in. And when we look out and it seems like the world is completely opposed to us, we should not be startled or afraid. But we should recognize that this is the nature of the world we live in. and We should hate, take hope. For just as Christ has overcome the world, so will we as long as we cling to him. So the church is people who are through faith united to Christ. We're moving on and we will see that Peter also shows us that the church is a people chosen by God. In verse 9, Peter says that the church is a chosen race. So this idea of a chosen race alludes to uh, the scriptural teaching on predestination. And while it's not a doctrine that is fully developed in this text, it is an important idea that underlines what Peter is developing in this idea. I mean, first, if we just look at scripture in general, whenever the identity of the church is talked about at length, uh, we, is not, you can very nearly close to those passages find some sort of teaching on the doctrine of predestination. In Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we see this happening in Romans chapter 9. And Peter, in this passage, has no problem using the phrase chosen, knowing that it was common language in the church. 
So as we think about this idea of election, of predestination, uh, there are really two basic views that people take. One of them, that is, God chose us based on foreseen faith. That is, in eternity past, God looked forward at the creation that he would make, and he looked far and wide for those who would say, me, me, me. He would say, I believe, and, and then he picked them. That's one view of what election is, what predestination is. The other view is that God chose some for his own reasons. That he did not choose some based on some sort of forcing faith, but out of his infinite and eternal and holy wisdom, he chose some for salvation. And implied in that is there are some that he did not choose. And it is the latter of these two views that I uh, believe that the scriptures teach, which our church uh, confessionally holds to. And I'd like to take just a minute to establish this from scripture. So if we could look at Ephesians chapter 1, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking very briefly at verses 3 through 6. So to establish this idea that God chose us not on forcing faith, but according to his, for his own reasons and according to his own infinite wisdom. So Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And just as he note, chose us in him, when did he do this? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having what predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself. And here's the very important phrase. Why did he do this? According to what standard? Was it based on foreseen faith? No, but according to the good pleasure of his will. Let me read that one more time. According to the good pleasure of his will, he chose some. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And for those who would argue that this election is based on foreseen faith, they will have to reckon with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which demonstrates that even faith is a gift from God. Now, the doctrine of predestination, we are in a Reformed church, so this shouldn't come as any huge surprise, but I, I just want to comment that this is a difficult doctrine, and it's natural to struggle with it. So if you're someone in here who's kind of, you've enjoyed the preaching at the church, but you aren't sure quite what to make of this teaching, you've maybe heard it mentioned in passing, it might be something that you're even actively struggling with, I want to let you know that you're not alone. And in fact, I would even go so far to say is if you've never really struggled with this doctrine at any level, I can maybe you haven't fully considered uh, the weight of it. But one of the, and I can't fully exhaust uh, this teaching and to help you think through it, but I do think in this passage we have before us, we have one verse that does help us at least with one of the difficulties of election, and that is in verse 8. So if you, we're back in in, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. We have a verse here that I think helps us a little bit to uh, struggle through the doctrine of election. Because one of the, the difficulties with election is this. 
If God is in complete control over all things, as you say he is, how is that we are still responsible? Or in other words, how can someone who is under the complete sovereignty of God and who has fallen into sin under the complete sovereignty of God, then punished for their sins, which were committed under the complete sovereignty of God. If God was completely sovereign, why is man still responsible? Let us read verse 8, and we're going to see something that I believe is right here in the text and helping us think through that. So it's the second part, verse 8, and it says, They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So, talking about those who uh, were rejected, who have rejected Christ and then therefore are rejected by God, this passage, this verse right here says, they stumble. But it also says, to which they also were appointed. And here's what I'm getting at, and I see in this text, and I believe is right there. These people are fully responsible for their actions, and yet God was fully in control of them. Scriptures continuously uphold both of these realities. And you say, how? Well, we don't get full reconciliation of that, other than that scripture holds them both up. So I guess for some, you might be like, wait, that, that was it? That was the thing that was supposed to help me? That scripture says both of these things are true? Um, and I say yes, and you say, well, how, do, how are they both true? And I say, well, just deal with it. And I'm, I'm tempted to use a math illustration now, but last time I used a math illustration, I had a few people come out, up to me saying that they couldn't stop thinking about the math for the whole rest of the sermon, so I don't want to distract anybody by doing something like that. Election. It's a difficult doctrine, but it's also a precious Thing that scripture teaches to us. For those who can see it, that, that from eternity past in his infinite wisdom, God chose some to redeem and to save. And to come to the realization that there is no other being in the universe who is equipped to make that decision should be a source of great comfort. Do we really want that decision, that ultimate decision left in the hands of feeble humans. Uh, And for those of you who continue to struggle with it, I would ultimately say, find your comfort in knowing that God is perfect, just, and holy. We can't fully understand it, but what we can understand is that God is good in all that he does. And I believe that that is supposed to be a comfort to the church, the suffering church. And for those of you who would wonder yourself, well, is predestination really practical? Well, as we think about the church, which is what Peter's talking about here, I think that this is one area where what the scripture teaches about predestination is very practical because it completely transforms how we think about and understand what the church is. I have a lot of wonderful Arminian brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. And for those of you who aren't aware, Arminian would be one who holds that first position I had mentioned, that God election is based on foreseen faith. And I know, have many Arminian brothers and sisters who's, uh, who oftentimes I find myself convicted by their faithfulness and their commitment to Christ. 
However, one thing I often notice when talking about the church with my Arminian brothers and sisters is that they tend to see the church as a voluntary association. It's this, it's the thing where, you know, there's Christ, individual Christians, and Christianity is primarily this individual thing, and those people who are Christians who have each made a profession of faith happen to get together once a week to be fed by the word of God. Now, this isn't absolute, but that's a general pattern I have noticed among Armenian friends, but I have also noticed among Reformed people that we see that the church is this people that God is sovereignly working to bring together for his good purposes. So as we look around, it is not a coincidence that the people next to you, behind you, in front of you, in the pews, were brought together. But we, we know that the church is a people who God is redeeming together for his eternal purposes, and we will be spending eternity together as his people. So understanding election transforms the way that we see the church. Each person here is sovereignly ordained by God to be among us. So moving on to the third trait that we see uh, Peter elaborating about the church in this passage is that the people, the church is a people united together in God. We see this in verse 5 with the image of living stones who are being built up a spiritual house. In verse 9, there's the mentioning of a holy nation. In verse 10, he, said, he, quote, he says, uh, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. So let me be direct. This passage that we have before us demonstrates that there is one people of God. There are some theologies that teach that there are two peoples of God, Israel and the church. But this passage shows that there is only one. Consider just a few points here. All the imagery that we have throughout this passage uh, points to Israel. Think about living stones, holy priesthood. These are actually all allusions or direct quotations from the Old Testament in reference to Israel now being used to describe the church. Uh, verses 9 and 10, uh, again, give our uh, direct allude, are filled with, well, let's just look at it. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Each one of those being directly uh, an, an Old Testament allusion to Israel. And then in verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So the church is one people. And understanding the relationship between Israel and the church should transform the way that we view the church and our place in it. Like I mentioned a bit ago, the church is not a place where a bunch of individual peoples happen to be saved together. But the church is a people that we are being saved into. We're, it is not inappropriate to, be say, to say that we are being saved into the church, into the people of God. So take a look around, people. Literally. I know it's a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. Okay, look around. These are the people who you have been knit together with in God's complete and utter sovereignty. And he has saved you into this body here, particularly, and to his church, universal. But these is, this is the specific expression here in Olympia, Washington, at least one of them, of his church. 
But by being saved into the church, we're not just saved into the Bible Presbyterian Church of Olympia. We're saved into his church throughout the world in our time. So we should always be uh, grateful and look forward to opportunities to be united with other Christians. I always take great delight in being able to visit other churches when away on vacations, to be able to meet saints in other parts of the world. I know that's not everybody's experience. I'm probably more of an extrovert in, in that. Some people hate visiting other churches just because of like the uncomfortable uh, kind of uh, conversate, you know, chit chat that you have to have. But um, I always take great delight in getting to meet saints in other places of the world. But we're not just united with other Christians around the world. We are united with other Christians throughout history, which would include all the Christians of ancient Israel. So, this is, should be, again, each one of these things should be a source of encouragement and hope in a, in a world. So to know that we are part of something bigger than just us, to know that we have been knit into this family, to knit into this body, into the people that isn't just here in a local expression, but is throughout the world, and isn't just throughout the world, but is throughout history, backward and forward, we should take great encouragement in knowing that we are part of so much bigger. So up to this point in time, I've given you three things that the church is the people through faith united to Christ, that the church is a people who are chosen by God, and that the church is a people united together in God. These have really been mainly about the identity of the church. And I just... There are two more points from Peter that we're going to look at, which move from the identity of the church to the calling of the church. So we'll see the fourth point from Peter about the church is that the church is a people created to worship God. Let's look at verses 5 and 9. In verse 5 we read, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, we read that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you. So the church is a people created to worship God. So the first part... thing in this passage that I saw pointing to this reality that we are people created to worship God is that we're priests. It says you're a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So what is this getting at? Why is Peter calling us priests? Well, let's think about what priests do. Priests were those who were set apart to daily bring the people before God. Uh, When we teach in the the catechism class, we uh, talk about Christ being the prophet, priest, and king. One of the ways that I've that we talk about the distinction between a prophet and a priest is that a prophet is one who brings the word of God to the people of God, and a priest is the one who brings the people of God before God, but who brings their needs. So the priests are those who are set apart and who have direct access to God. And so there, while in one sense we do not have priests who mediate between us and God. So pastors and elders are not priests. Um, 
pre, so Peter is, is calling us priests, and this has been referred to as the priesthood of believers. So we're all, in a sense, priests, because we all, in a sense, have direct access through Christ to God. But it must be clear that this is not a, we are not, we are priests who offer sacrifices. Sorry, I got a little bit jumbled there. Let me just, priests are people who are set apart and have direct access to God. But what do priests primarily do? They offer sacrifices. Those of us who read our Old Testaments know that this is the chief business of priests. I love uh, talking about the priests and studying that with my daughters because I always talk about the blood. And we were uh, talking about the, uh, the tabernacle this year. We went through a book that took us through all the aspects of it, and we got thinking about how disgusting that had to have been to have all the blood just being poured over the, the different altars and realizing there's no part in which it talks about someone coming in behind and, like, polishing up the altars with all that blood and how just like layers and layers of thick blood must have built up on it and it must have just been so completely uh, disgusting but to but to, to bring forth the reality of the cost of the sacrifice and all that blood and we know that priests didn't only offer bloody sacrifices there were other kinds but the bloody ones are the ones that are uh, fun to talk about um but it's not the bloody sacrifices that I think we should have, think of mostly when Peter talks about bringing spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Because those bloody sacrifices pointed to the ultimate propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. That When I say propitiatory, I'm talking about the, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice of Christ. And there is nothing we can do, no sacrifice we can personally bring that can make us righteous in the sight of God. That is something that Christ alone did as the great high priest. But we do bring sacrifices of thanksgiving and sacrifices of praise. And what is the nature of these sacrifices that we bring to God? I believe that they are ultimately sacrifices of our obedience I believe that Romans 12 helps us to see that by talking about present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, and to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So we bring our sacrifices to God of thanksgiving, and one of the primary manifestations of that is our obedience. And so we express our thanksgiving, our worship, through obedience, and our obedience is pleasing to to God. But why is our obedience pleasing to God? Well, as I was preparing for this sermon, I had uh, an image, a perfect picture of what I believe the scriptures teach us about this delight of God. Now, when we think of God being a father and taking delight in our obedience, some may have a very twisted and perverted image of that, of God being sort of some sort of tyrant who takes a sick and personal pleasure in people just doing what he says for the mere sake of it, a sort of power trip, or a grumpy father who just wants them to just do what I say. But I don't think that that is the picture of what we have in God. Rather, I believe 
that as we think about what Peter said, quoting the Old Testament in chapter 1, verse 16, reminding us that God calls us to be holy, for I am holy, that our calls to obedience, our, our calls to be like God, and God takes great delight in us being like him. And, and here's that, that picture that I mentioned a little bit ago. As I was preparing this sermon, I was cleaning out my work van, and as I was doing so, my youngest son, Edmund, was outside with me, and as, as I was in part looking at him, tr- worried that he, trying to keep him from running into the street as I was cleaning, trying to pay attention to him, I realized after a little bit, he started bringing things from the garage to my van. Now, it was a little bit annoying because I was actually mostly taking things from my van to the garage, so he was creating extra trips for me. But there was a part of what Edmund was doing that created great delight in my heart because I saw what he was doing as he was trying to be like me. He saw me taking trips back and forth from my van to the garage, and he wanted to join in in that work. And I believe that when we seek to obey God from a heart of faith, the delight that God gets, the praise that God gets from that is because we are being like him. And that is ultimately what he desires. The Ten Commandments are an expression of God's very nature and character. And so when we are, are, are transformed in our conformity to that, uh, God is greatly honored by that because we are like him. And one last point about this idea of we are uh, created to worship him. I would say that one of our greatest expressions of obedience is gathering with the saints weekly for corporate worship. We are called to gather under his word for worship, and God tells us how to worship him, which is in faith, with a pure heart, and according to the dictates of his word. So let us not take lightly what we do here weekly. It is a, it is, is a, it is a, we come together to express worship by praying to him, by singing to him, by listening to him, and by being together as his people. And it's a great honor and privilege to be able to do so. And in doing so, we glorify him not just in our express acts of worship, but in the obedience of doing so as well. And the final characteristic as we think about the church and uh, the second part of our calling as the church we see that the church is a people called to display God's glory. In verse 5, again, we're referred to as living stones, uh, being a reference to the temple. And then in verse 9, it explicitly says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And even verse 12, which isn't directly in this passage that we're considering today, but it's kind of where it heads, he, Peter goes on to say that by your good works which they observe, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. So the church is a people called to display God's glory. And I think the chief picture of this in our passage is this idea of living stones, which is an allusion to the temple. So as we think about the temple and Jesus being the chief cornerstone and us being the living stones of that temple, the natural place our mind should go is what is the purpose of the temple. Well, the purpose of the temple, uh, the temple was a special dwelling place of God. And so we serve a God who is not physically seen, but we see in the old covenant that God's presence was made known through the temple, 
first the tabernacle and then the temple. And so what's the connection there? Well, just as God's presence was made, special presence was made known through the temple, so it is now made known through the church. So as living stones part of God's temple, God dwells among us in a special way, displaying himself to the nations. And I think when we contrast this with other religions, the picture becomes helpful into focus. Let's think of Allah, the Muslim God. Where do Muslims go to find Allah? They go to Mecca. Okay. What about the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom? Not that anybody serves her anymore. Well, those people may turn to the universities or other sources of learning in the world. I looked up on Google what would be a god or goddess of prosperity. I came up with Kai Shen. Never heard of this god, goddess before, but it's the Chinese god of prosperity. Where would the people who want to worship prosperity turn? They may turn to the stock market or to the malls. But those who would seek out the triune god of scripture... Where do they turn? Where do they go to find that God? They turn to his people. People of God, we have a high and holy calling as his church. And while we as individual Christians are called to be a witness in the world, I want you to take special note of the corporate nature of our witness in this passage. Stones being built up a spiritual house. Our corporate identity as the church is central to our witness in the world. We cannot neglect our obligations to one another. We cannot neglect our obligations to the body of Christ. Yes, this means attending weekly worship, which we already discussed, but it means much more. Earlier, we, I had you guys look uncomfortably around at one another. And these are not people that God has redeemed and called. These are not only people that God has redeemed and called together in his divine providence, but these are people that he has called you to be committed to. He has called us to be committed to one another. And these are the people he's called you to serve. These are the people you are supposed to love. Do you know the people of the church? Do you love the people of the church? Let us not... Neglect this great calling because it is in our love for one another that we will serve as a witness in our world to the great and mighty merciful acts of God. So people of the church, receive the Lord's call today to take serious your identity and your calling as a church. Being united to Christ by faith, chosen by God, part of the family of God, being united together as one people, called to worship him and called to display his glory. May your identity as the church be an encouragement to you, and may you, by God's grace, take heed of your calling as the church today. Let us pray. Gracious Father, uh, it is uh, humbling to have been called into your church May it be our great joy to be identified with it. Father, we know that apart from the work of Christ and our trust in him, uh, we would have no hope. But in him, 
We have all the treasure of the world, and that included in that is being knit into your body. May you receive all glory today, and may these words minister to our hearts and souls this week as we strive to serve you in this hostile world together as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>